0: You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, Again, it is good to be with you. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Tony. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. I'm a pastor to young adults here at Southcrest. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we actually are looking at the same passage um, that Brother David is preaching from in the main worship center, and it just happened to fall out that way, being that uh, I got the call on Friday to fill in. Uh, so I'm excited. There have been many times in my own life, <clears throat> excuse me, where I felt unqualified. Many times, often that I'm reminded that I am unfit for pastoral ministry. In fact, none of us are. I would sure, I'm sure Cole, uh, Casey, Austin, Brandon, even Brother David would agree, regular, ordinary men like us are not fit for pastoral ministry, but there is something unique about us, not anything that we have or we've done. It's all of God. And if we ever get to a point where we feel like maybe we are fit, then I've determined even personally that that is the time when we should be done. I've also felt unqualified in many other things in my life. Uh, I'm sure many of you in this room have felt the same way. Many times you yourself may have felt unqualified to do something simple or something difficult in life, whether it was something very tiny or maybe it was something really big, maybe the biggest responsibility you've ever had until this point in your life. Now, feeling unqualified connotes an idea of fear or a feeling of fear, discomfort, and oftentimes uncertainty. Usually, the only thing that is of great help to us as humans in those moments is when we learn that we have been given something that will help us accomplish this task or maybe a mission, something given to us supernaturally. I begin this way this morning because I feel like these 12 men we're about to read about in Acts chapter 1 more than likely experience this feeling of being unqualified Now, keep in mind, they were trained by Jesus for three and a half years. And then subsequently, Jesus, as we're going to see in just a moment, is going to send them out on mission. And then Jesus disappears into the sky. Now, a month ago, it was, I can't believe it's already been a month, I was here as I got to preach to you from the book of Matthew, and we spent time looking at the Great Commission, and what I attempted to do was to clarify the commission and call your attention to the command of disciple-making. And it seems as if today, in God's providence, that we get to spend time thinking about the result of that commission as it is laid out here in the book of Acts, which is actually part two of Luke's gospel. Now, the book of Acts gives us so many things. One of the things it gives us is a blueprint for the church. Acts is literally the very first book written about church history. If you were to consider the timing of this writing, the church is not only a new concept, it is new in its existence. Another thing the book of Acts gives us is a picture of how the gospel spread to the entire known world in just a span of three decades. In other words, the book of Acts is a written record of a worldwide mission project. In Acts chapter 1, we see Jesus meeting with his disciples, who he will now call apostles, and he's going over the details of this mission and how it's going to work. Now, think with me for just a moment. By the way, if I, can, I don't know if this is good of preachers to kind of let the cat out of the bag, but the way I've approached this time together this morning uh, through the preaching of the Word is really like I was just preparing a Bible study and I'm sitting at the table with eight people. Now, I know that's not the case because I'm in a room on a stage with almost 200 people, but I want you to know that, that that's kind of the way I've approached this, and I hope maybe you'll see that as, as we move along. Now, think for just a moment. The last thing I said was that Jesus is about to go over the details of this mission and how it's going to be accomplished. Think for just a moment. Why mission? What is mission? Why was Jesus on a mission? And what was Jesus trying to accomplish with this mission. Now, I don't know who you are, if you've ever been on a mission trip or if you haven't. I don't know if you ever spent time just thinking about the word mission and how it uh, connects to the Christian faith. It's something that changed drastically over the course of my Christian life as I got to study the word more and actually got to go on a short-term mission trip and and let God work in my life through that. But as I thought about this, I reached out to a source uh, that I, found, I believe is one of the greatest resources or books on mission. It is written by John Piper in a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And I bring this to your attention because he de- defines or describes mission in this way. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. End quote. Worship, then, is ultimate. It is what fuels our mission. Missions is not ultimate. Now, I believe this to be true because I know this. In heaven, missions will not exist. But worship will for all of eternity. Therefore, Jesus was on a mission here on earth to rescue sinners so they could experience an everlasting joy in the presence of God. So, Jesus was sent on mission from his father. Jesus then commissions and sends out his followers, but let's remember who they are and what they've been asked to do, which is, again, why I begin the way I did, speaking about being unqualified. These men are ordinary men with no extraordinary features. And they've been asked to spread the good news around the world. Now, because I believe that to be true, that led me to this statement. Never before has a greater task been given to such an unqualified people. Never before has a greater task been given to such an unqualified people. Now, when you think about the important events that have happened all throughout human history, as important as they may have been, And as much as they contributed to that particular time, culture, and society, none of them will ever compare to the weight of this task as we see given here in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, but also again here in Acts chapter 1. Nothing will compare to this mission as it was given to the apostles. So this morning, I'd like to spend a few moments just kind of dwelling on these verses. But before we dwell, we must read. And before we read, we must pray. So let's pray. Spirit of God, help us now. Open our hearts and our minds to be receptive to the simplicities of this historical narrative as we see here in Acts chapter 1. Help us to grasp not only importance, but Father, help us to grab the power and the motivation behind it, Lord, and that it would change our lives radically. Father, I pray that you would invade our hearts and our minds this morning. Father, have your way and your authority in us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, my aim this morning, if you're looking for kind of a main idea or my goal this morning in our time together, is to preach the gospel of Jesus to you by showing you that God's rescue plan involves people. Like you and me. God's rescue plan involves unqualified people like you and me. Now, to get there, let's talk briefly about the book of Acts. The author of this book is indeed Luke, who actually, to some degree, is responsible for more of the New Testament than Paul is. We actually look at the New Testament and think, well, Paul's written more of those letters, he's actually responsible for the majority of it. But When you look at verses and chapters and page count, Luke, in his two books, excuse me, wrote more than Paul did. Just a fun fact. Uh, Many scholars and theologians have have referred to these two letters while they're separated in the New Testament. They see them together as one. They actually call them Luke-Acts, primarily because they were written relatively close in time. And it seems as if this second volume that Luke wrote was specifically intended to be a follow up to the first one. Now, in a very real and necessary way, the book of Acts serves as a bridge from the four Gospels to the rest of the New Testament. Y'all follow me? Four Gospels, Acts is the bridge to the rest of the New Testament, and here's what I mean the Gospels, the four, first four books of the New Testament, show us or span the life of Jesus Christ. While the book of Acts spans the life of the Christian. In the first four Gospels, Jesus models Christianity, while in the book of Acts, everyday people are modeling Christianity. In the Gospels, we, you and I, are the admiring audience of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, we are now the ones on stage. In the Gospels, Jesus is working to secure salvation for all who will believe. And in Acts, the apostles are taking this message of hope and salvation to the ends of the world. Now, the mission that Jesus is sending the apostles out on in Acts chapter one, we'll see here in just a moment, is the most important mission that has been and is continuing to be carried out in all of human history. Look at verse four with me. We're gonna read down to verse eight. And while staying with them, Verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This mission that Jesus is sending his followers out on is the most important or vital mission because of this. It enables broken, sinful creatures like you and I to enter into a relationship with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Simply put, this mission is important because it deals with people's eternity. We're dealing with people's eternity when we're thinking about living on mission, sharing our faith, and sharing the gospel with people. People will spend an eternity either apart from God, their creator, or they will spend an eternity in the presence with God, their creator. So for the remainder of our time, what I'd like to do is look briefly at these verses. Again, I've, I don't have points, but I do have four things that kind of come to my attention as I read through and studied this. And again, I told you earlier, I was approaching this as if we were sitting at a table together. There was eight of us and we're just doing a Bible study and we're thinking and writing and talking. I actually got to teach or preach this text about six years ago. And the way I approached it was I was trying to, with the small people that I was meeting, the small group of people that I met with that Sunday night, I was trying to approach it to determine what the main point of this passage is. Y'all with me? So in verses six, seven, and eight, I'm thinking through it. I'm looking at words. I'm trying to make connections and I'm trying to determine what the main point of this passage is. So to do that, I want to highlight four things, four elements, if you will, Again, not necessarily points, but four elements that I see in this text that help us determine what is really going on here. Number one, we see in verse four, one of the key players is the apostles. The apostles. Now here we are told who is going to be a part of this mission or who's going to start this mission. Jesus had spent the last three and a half years of his life training these men whom he is now calling, who he used to call disciples, but is now calling disciples apostles. Now there is a difference between those two words, even though they are often used interchangeably in the New Testament. And let me again uh, define them for you just to, for the sake of clarity. We talked about what a disciple is about a month ago. A disciple simply is, when you look at the word that Jesus used and spoke in the text, a disciple is one who is a student or an apprentice, a learner, follower. And you see that in the life of the men that followed Jesus. They submitted themselves, they tethered themselves to Jesus. And he taught and trained them for three years. Now, the word apostle, what does that mean? It simply means this. One who is sent out with a message. One who is sent out with a message. Now, understanding that, it's almost as if Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he called those men that day, knowing that it was going to lead to his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then his commissioning out. He trained them, showed them how to do it, told them what to do, and then he sent them out. And dear friend, brother, sister, it's the same for us. He calls us into his family, shows us how beautiful and good and loving he is, and then asks us to go out and share this message with the lost world. Now, again, as I thought about the main idea of this text, don't get me wrong, these men are important. They, they play an important part to this mission because they're the ones that Jesus had selected to carry the good news to the nations and to bear witness to his life and resurrection. So I don't want to minimize them. They are important, but you would agree with me just in a few moments ago as we read those verses that they're not necessarily the main point to this passage or this particular event, but they do play a role in it. Second thing I see, In verse 6, we see the element of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. In verse 6, we see that the disciples are particularly curious and excited. And you see it as they question Jesus about restoring the kingdom to Israel. In short, they mean this. Jesus, are you about to restore the kingdom of God as promised? Now they weren't crazy for thinking that because those men at that time were simply just recalling the Bible that they had at time at that time, which was the Old Testament. They were thinking back to Ezekiel 36 and Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where it says that the Holy Spirit would come at a particular time, and at that point the kingdom would be restored. But Jesus replies to them and saying. Nah, nah, the timing of the coming of the kingdom is not for you to know. Don't worry about that. We got this. But I thought, I don't know if you have too. What do we mean when we see or say the, the, the phrase kingdom of God? When we see that in the New Testament. What does the Bible say and mean when it speaks about the kingdom of God? Well, the New Testament has a lot to say about it. In all three of the synoptic Gospels, which is the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the phrase, the kingdom of God, or it is rendered as the kingdom of heaven, is near. Acts chapter 28, verse 31, actually is a very good summary of Paul's preaching ministry, where he preached that the kingdom of God is near, is at hand. We see this phrase again in the four Gospels. We also see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 12, 2 Peter chapter one, and even Revelation 11 and 12, just to list a few. But what is meant and what do we mean when we see or say the phrase, the kingdom of God? Now, I thought it was important just to take a moment to talk about this because I feel like as humans living in the year 2021, we often think about a geographical place, right? Y'all tracking with me? Like the kingdom of God, it's in heaven, it's there, but it's coming. So we think about a a place. But what I've seen and read through different books and looking at scripture, the kingdom of God is not limited to just a place. Greg Gilbert wrote a book called What is the Gospel? And he offers us a fairly simple definition. And he says it this way. The kingdom of God is God's redemptive rule, reign, and authority over those who have been redeemed by Jesus. The kingdom of God is God's redemptive rule, reign and authority over those who have been redeemed by Jesus. In other words, God's kingdom is where God reigns and rules over those who belong to him. This is what we mean when we talk about as Christians, we get to go and live on mission to further the kingdom. God's kingdom is found wherever God is and rules by his power, grace, and glory. He makes his own rules, his own domain, and his own people, not the people of God. Not the people of him. He makes them. So there's a second element, the kingdom of God. There's a third one. The third element to this text probably is the most important one. But as I thought about it, it isn't necessarily the main point. Look at verse eight, where Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. So the third element to this passage is the Holy Spirit. Brandon Hayes gave a very timely message about the Holy Spirit just last week. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here. Matter of fact, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But I think it would be helpful to talk about and point out the significance of God promising and sending the Holy Spirit in relation to the acts of the apostles. Now, I mean this, and let's just be honest for just a second. These 12 men trying to accomplish what Jesus has given them, the task he's given them to do, in and of themselves, they're not gonna do it. Would y'all agree with me? Like, they're gonna fail as soon as they walk out the door. So apart from God... through the Holy Spirit, nothing good could come unless God helps, intervenes on our behalf and helps. Now, when we think about the Holy Spirit, we often, I don't know if you, depending on where you're at in your spiritual journey, how you view the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes as humans, we view the Holy Spirit as an abstract, kind of a distant being or force. Like, yes, I believe he's the one person of the Trinity and I, I, I get that, I kind of see that as much as I can comprehend that. But I feel though, and maybe you'd agree with me, the Holy Spirit is a one part of the Trinity that we often neglect the most. R.C. Sproul said this, he wrote a little book on the Holy Spirit, it was very helpful, I was reading it uh, yesterday. He said this, forces in and of themselves are impersonal, but the Holy Spirit is not simply an abstract force. He is a person who empowers the people of God for the Christian life. So God is the author of salvation. Jesus is the one who secures it. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who enables you to live it out. Now, fortunately, the apostles would not be left alone to their own devices to carry out this mission. And brother, sister, nor are we. This passage is highly encouraging for us living in this day and age, as crazy as it is, to go and live out our faith and live on mission for Jesus. So for the Christian in the room, I want you to know this, that you have been given the spirit of God as a seal on the deal. When you did business with God and you gave your life to him, you surrendered your life to him, God gives you the Holy Spirit as a deal sealer. Therefore, you can go and live in the power that God has provided to you. I like the way Tony Merida explained this when he was, he commented on this passage. He said this. Having received essential teaching, the disciples would eventually be given the essential power required in witnesses of Jesus. These ordinary people of God, equipped with the word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, dedicated to the Son of God, can accomplish the mission of God. That's them. And that's us too. You see, sharing the good news of the gospel, sharing your faith, sharing Jesus with people is really only half the battle. We must consistently learn to be reliant and dependent upon the spirit of God. It's the third element. Here's the fourth one. Fourth element in this passage. Look at again at verse eight. Jesus says something specifically. I wanna talk about briefly and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Witnesses or you can write the word witness, fourth element here. This fourth and final element leads me to explain what I believe to be the main idea or the main point to this passage, verses four through eight. Now here's what I mean. We've got a meeting between the disciples and the resurrected Jesus, and that's really cool. Then Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is coming, And the disciples are like, is this the kingdom being restored to Israel? And Jesus is like, hey, that's cool too. That's coming, but don't worry about the timing of that. Again, those things are not necessarily the main point. Then Jesus says, you will, matter of fact, what I love about that verse and that phrase is there's almost an imperative sense to it where you actually could understand it as you must receive the Holy Spirit, So Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, as cool as that is, dear friends, don't misunderstand me. Don't get me wrong. This moment in time, this event in history is awesome. Okay? We're talking about the Spirit of God dwelling in people to carry out the mission. That's awesome. But that still is not the main idea or the main point to the text. All of that leads us to the goal or the result. All of those things lead us to the result. But let's take it one step further. The result is being a witness for Jesus. Y'all see it in the passage? The Holy Spirit will come, you will receive power, so then you will be my witnesses. That's the main idea. You will be my witnesses. But let's take it one step further. Because the word witness in our modern day minds tend to think about what? Like a witness in a court setting, right? Yeah? One who has observed an event or a crime or an activity and they're there to testify about it. Now, while that is true, and I think that is partly uh, kind of what Jesus meant and what he intended when he said this, but I believe he also meant something else. The Greek word for witness is pronounced, the root of it, martus, which comes into English, transliterated, as martyr. While Jesus wanted them to be witnesses to his life, death, and resurrection, I wholeheartedly believe, dear brother and sister, that he was asking them to be willing to lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. I mean, not only was he asking them, because think of who he is in this moment, being divine and knowing all things he was telling them. He knew that they would lose their lives. And I think that's a reminder for us this morning. Do we believe that this Jesus is who he says he is? And are we relying in the spirit of God in our daily lives or are we trusting in our own efforts? I think maybe that's why we feel like failure so often. Yes, we're, we're not fully restored yet. That's coming when we get to glory, when we get to heaven. We are being sanctified. We are being restored. But I think oftentimes, I know I'm, I'm probably guilty of this too. You have good days and bad days. But I wondered yesterday, maybe that's why we often feel like we're failures. Because we're not really living a life in the spirit of God. Like he's given it to us and we're like, hey, thanks. I'm going to go do my own thing. The great truth of being a Christian is this I can't, but Jesus can. Because Jesus did. (laughs) I want to invite the band to come up. As we begin to wrap this up, and here's where I kind of wanted to go as we close. In our time of response, Brandon's mentioned this, and I wholly believe this, anytime the word of God is opened and preached and taught, I believe to some degree, it requires a response on our part. Like, what are we going to do with the truth that we just heard? What are we going to do with it? So in this room, I know that there are really two kinds of people. I know we all come from different walks and backgrounds and different ethnicities, and we come... we. Maybe some of us are from Lubbock and some of us are from other places around the world. It doesn't matter. There are two kinds of people in this room, Christian and non-Christian. It's the difference. Not that we're better or more holier than now. It's just, we've been forgiven. We're trusting in Jesus. So for the two people in the room, I think here's the way we respond. For the Christian first, we've been getting in the habit of, of inviting you to actually come and pray and, and use this platform as an altar. I'm not asking people to come up as we have thought about Acts 1, 4 through 8, we've looked at four elements and we've seen what God is doing there through the apostles and we see the results of it because hey, we're here in Lubbock, Texas worshiping Jesus because of 12 men who gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. So I'm not asking the Christians to come up and surrender their lives to the mission field. That could happen. If God's moving in your heart and tugging in that direction, then you respond. I just think it's important for us to start like here. Y'all follow me? Like, let's just start in Lubbock. In our families, in our circle of, or this this fear that we live in of of friends and family, our co-workers, the things that we're involved in regularly. Let's just start there. Amen? How can we ever expect anyone to go to the nations if they're not willing to start right here in their own backyard or in their own hometown? Acts chapter one, verses 12 through 14, we didn't go there, but in the verses that follow, uh, four through eight, we see something pretty remarkable. The disciples just got the news from Jesus and they watched him disappear into the eye. Y'all remember that? And then they went into an upper room, locked the door and devoted themselves to praying. So can we just say this? Christian, like you can do it where you're at. You can come up here. We're going to have people up front to pray with you. Can we just say, hey, I'm going to trust in the spirit and, and that may mean, I'm, that's gonna start by just having a difficult conversation with, with a family member or a coworker or students for a classmate or a neighbor, whoever it may be, let's just start there. If that's you, the, the altar is open. You can come down and you can pray and you can lay it at the feet of Jesus. And you can know, dear Christian, wholeheartedly that you've got the power in you to do it. Secondly, to the non-Christian, can I invite you to believe in this Jesus if you're watching online? To put your faith and trust in this gospel, this, this redemptive story that God has planned through all of history in the life, death, and resurrection of the perfect God, man, Jesus. Would you put your trust in him to find forgiveness of sin and to receive purpose and joy in who Jesus is and what he's done? Can I invite you to do that? And if that's you, you come forward. And then, and only then, can you take this gospel and live on mission with the help of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna pray and then you respond. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for dwelling with us over these last few moments, for giving us a word, for giving us a purpose for giving us a mission. And Lord, now, Lord, we've seen, we, left to ourselves, we're not gonna accomplish much. But you have promised something great. The great helper, the great comforter, the advocate, the Holy Spirit. So Father, move in this place amongst your people. And God, it is my hope, even for myself, Lord, I, I know I'm not perfect in this that we would go from this place with the hope and joy and excitement, knowing it's going to be difficult, knowing it's going to be uncomfortable and knowing that we are completely unqualified. But we've got a great helper. So help us to go and live boldly, to share Jesus, to share our faith in a loving and gracious way. And God, would you receive the glory and all that is done. In Jesus' name I pray. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church.